Please turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, and if you don't have a Bible, these gentlemen have come up front. They're going to make their way to the back with Bibles in hand, so get their attention, and they'll get you a Bible that is marked to 1 Peter chapter 1 so that you can follow along. We're in a series in the book of 1 Peter. The title of the series you see, Living Right in a World Gone Wrong, on the screen behind me. Over the next several weeks and months, we'll be going through the five chapters of this marvelous book. We are still in chapter 1. Here's a, a somewhat typical conversation between Kimmy, my wife, and me uh, at home. Kimmy, what time is Anna's softball game? Me, 5 o'clock. Kimmy, how long does it take to get there? Me, 45 minutes. Kimmy. Then we'll need to leave by 2.30. Me. Look of confusion. Kimmy, noticing my look of confusion, says, Well, we have to pick up Laney's dress for the junior-senior banquet, and I have some returns to make, and I need to mail that package to my brother Bill in Germany. Me. Oh, I didn't know any of that. Kimmy, I'm sorry. I thought I told you. Or more often, I told you all of this. Don't you remember? Now, I've learned over the years that when words like so or then are used, as in, so we'll need to leave by 2.30, or then we're going to need to leave by 2.30, there's stuff that precedes the so and the then that I often don't know about, either because I wasn't told, I wasn't paying attention, or I forgot. And you know that there are words that assume some prior information. These are words that you would not normally begin a conversation with. You wouldn't normally go up to someone and say, therefore you should consider reading this book. Or, for the cold weather is coming. You may begin a sentence with therefore, or even the word for, but you don't begin a conversation that way, because both of those words assume something has been said before. So instead of just starting with, therefore, you should consider reading this book, you'd first say, hey, we've talked about your struggle with worry, and I was recently helped by something I read, therefore, you should consider reading this book. Or instead of just starting with, for the cold weather is coming, you would first say, we need to get the outside work around the house finished for or because the cold weather is coming. Now, why do I bring all of that up? Well, it's because often in Scripture you see words like therefore or for. And they're always connected to something that goes before. And if you don't make that connection, then those words don't make any sense. And the first verse that we're going to consider today is verse 13 of 1 Peter chapter 1. And notice how it begins. It begins, therefore. And verse 16 begins with four, as does verse 18. Now, each of those is explaining or expanding on something said prior. So when verse 13 begins with therefore, what is it referring to? Well, it's what we've been looking at for these last few weeks in verses 1 through 12. In those verses, I quickly remind you, tell us of our privileged position if we are believers in and followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. They tell us of what God has done for us and is doing in us and through us. 
And then based upon all of that, therefore, verse 13, this is what you should do. Now getting that order right is crucial to understanding the uniqueness of Christianity from all other religions. In all other religions, and I must say in some so-called Christian denominations, we do in order to receive. But in the gospel, we do because we have already received. And that's why you always find the for or the therefore you should do this after an explanation of what it is that you've been given. And so in the Bible, there are many therefores and thens and other connecting kinds of words. It's because the Bible does not tell us what to do until it first tells us who we are. The Bible first tells us why we should do something and why we can and then says, therefore, now you must do this. And so after the instruction of verses 1 through 12, now we have a section that goes from chapter 1 and verse 13 all the way to chapter 2 and verse 3. And in those 16 verses, there are all kinds of things that you are, that we are to do. But there are really, in all of those 16 verses, only four commands given. And I'd like to point those out to you. We're going to, if we have time, we're going to look at two of the four today and then another two in the coming, coming weeks. But in verse 13 is the first of these four commands where it says, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you. And then you have a second command in verse 15. Be holy in all you do. And then a third in verse 22. Love one another deeply. And then in chapter 2 and verse 2, crave pure spiritual milk. And that's why in the outline that's inserted in your program, I encourage you to take a look at that, if you will. We're going to be looking at four major points over the next few weeks based on each of those four commands from chapter 1 and verse 13 chapter two, through chapter 2 and verse 3. And so you see that there are four. Now, two of them are down at the bottom, numbers 3 and 4. And they're kind of faded out. That's not because the copier is bad. That's because we made it in gray on purpose because we're going to consider those two later. Today and over the next few weeks, we'll be looking at how God tells us to live in light of what He has done for us through Jesus. And we need God's grace to help us with that, don't we? And so let's ask God to help us as we look at His Word and see how he tells us that we are to live in response to what he has told us he has done for us in verses 1 through 12. Our Father, we come before you needy as always. Do we need your grace, our Lord? As we are reminded of what you have done, and then we are instructed as to what we are to do. Help us, Lord, to have open minds and open hearts, and help us to be willing to put into practice that which is only reasonable. It is our reasonable service, our spiritual act of worship, that we would respond to your mercy in the ways that you have laid out in your word. Help us to do that to your glory. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. So verse 13 says, therefore. And it gives then a command. Therefore, in the middle of the verse, set your hope on the grace of God to be brought to you. Now remember that this command to hope is written to people who are suffering in various ways. 
If you've been with us over the last few weeks, you know that that's the setting of the letter that Peter wrote. And he wrote to, according to verse 1 in chapter 1, elect exiles. And so these are people who are living either physically away from home, whether physically away from their home or not, they are spiritually foreigners, aliens in the world now because God has called them out of the world and to himself. And so these are people now who are living in various kinds of suffering and trial. In fact, verse 6 speaks of all kinds of trials. And their trials, the difficult circumstances they faced, may have included persecution at the hands of the Roman government, but it also included more mundane things, like how to treat those who are over us in the government but who are not personally worthy of respect or how to treat employers who treat us unfairly, or how husbands and wives are to play their roles in the home. These are all things that chapters 2 and 3 are going to tell us about. In other words, this is written to people like you and me who face difficulty in all shapes and sizes, but who are at the same time called to look beyond the present situation to what God is accomplishing in that situation and what He will accomplish through it into the future. And that's why in verse 13, the word hope is used. Because in Scripture, our hope always has a future orientation. Titus chapter 2, when Paul wrote to Titus, he said, The grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for, notice, the blessed hope. And what is the blessed hope? It's oriented toward the future. It's the the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. But those in the New Testament era, those who lived in the first century of Christianity, most of them thought that the blessed hope was going to be realized in their lifetimes. Did you know that? That's why you often have Paul or Peter or others They'll be writing of us and what we're going to do when Jesus returns as if it's going to happen very soon. As a matter of fact, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, as Paul speaks of the rapture of the church to Christ, he says, we who are still alive and remain. He includes himself in the we who will still be alive at the time that the Lord does this. They didn't know the times or the circumstances. Many of them expected it to be within their own lifetime, and so as years passed. And as the persecution and also the garden variety trials that beset them mounted, they were in danger of losing hope. And this is why Peter wrote this letter, to fortify their hope by reminding them of the basis for that hope. Peter knew that apart from confidence in the future, there is no will to obey in the present. Victor Frankl was a Holocaust survivor who endured a German concentration camp during World War II. In his book, Man's Search for Meaning, he told the true but tragic tale of a fellow prisoner who had lost all hope. Frankl wrote, A fairly well-known composer confided in me one day, Doctor, I have had a strange dream. A voice told me that I could wish for something, that I should only say what I wanted to know and all my questions would be answered. What do you think I asked? 
that I would like to know when the war would be over for me. You know what I mean, doctor? For me. I wanted to know when we, when our camp, would be liberated and our sufferings come to an end. And what did your dream voice answer? He whispered to me, March 30th. When he told me about his dream, he was full of hope. But as the promised day drew nearer, the war news which reached our camp made it appear very unlikely that we would be free on the promised day. On March 29th, he suddenly became ill. On March 30th, he became delirious and lost consciousness. On March 31st, he was dead. The importance of hope for sustenance, let alone obedience, in the present. And this hope for a better future that motivates us to obey in the present in Scripture is not a mere wish, it's not a dream, it's not based on the promise of some untrustworthy source, but it's a confident expectation based on the character and the promises of Almighty God. And so hope is a theme of the Apostle Peter in this opening chapter. Back in chapter 1 and verse 3, he tells us in his great mercy, in God's great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And then in verse 21 of chapter 1, you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and your hope are in God. So now when verse 13 tells us, set your hope on the grace that is to come, hear this, it's not asking us to do something blindly but to do something based on the absolute faithfulness and tr trustfulness of God, demonstrated already in the fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead. Now, have you ever considered this? That faith and hope are both based on the same thing. Faith and hope are both based on believing God. Faith believes God for the present. And hope believes God for the future. And our hope is a confident expectation based upon the promises of God, but not just the promises of God, but also the faithfulness of God as demonstrated by what God has done in the past. We are called to hope after now the resurrection of Jesus. Now think about those who were called to have faith and called to have hope before the resurrection of Jesus. What about those who didn't have the resurrection to look back to and yet were told to obey God based upon his promises? And you all know that even though, even though Abraham was a man who struggled with sin like all of us do, and his sin is recorded in Scripture, this is why Abraham is extolled as the supreme example of faith, of believing God. Because he believed God apart from the evidence that we have. Have you ever considered that? God called Abraham to a land that Abraham did not know. God made promises of descendants while Abraham was childless. And when he was up in years, a hundred for Abraham, ninety for his wife Sarah. And he was still called to the obedience of faith. And that's why in talking about the centrality of faith to the Christian life, 
In Romans chapter 4, it uses Abraham as the supreme example and says, against all hope. Abraham in hope believed. In fact, some translations say he hoped against hope. That's where we get that phrase, hoping against hope. Because here's Abraham, who's really been given little basis, certainly not the kind of basis that that we have now, post-Jesus, post-resurrection. And yet, he still put his confidence in the character and promises of God. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said to him, so shall your offspring be. And it goes on to say, without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. Now, it's not that Abraham had no reason to believe God, of course. He had good reason to believe in God's goodness, as seen in creation itself. But the truth is all people have that, don't they? And few believe it. And we have, we have all that Abraham had and the fulfillment of many of the promises gave to Abraham so that our hope is in, according to verse 3 of chapter 1, in a living hope based on the resurrection of Jesus. And so here is what Peter is telling us. In light of what God has done for us, as recorded in verses 1 through 12 of that first chapter, Now, beginning in verse 13, we're to live a particular way, and we have it for you in your outline. In light of all of that, we are to live as if God is worthy. That God is worthy of our trust. Live as if God is worthy of trust. Therefore, verse 13, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed as His coming. The command is to set our hope on the future grace, but the first part of the verse tells us how it's to be done. With an alert mind and fully sober. And when it says to have an alert mind, as you now fulfill this command, to set your hope on your future salvation, to be realized when Jesus Christ returns, when it says, have an alert mind, it's literally, it literally says, gird up your, the loins of your mind. What is that? Well, it's battle imagery. And Peter understood that there is a battle that goes on for our minds and that our minds must be, must be guarded. And that's why he uses this kind of being alert girding up the loins of your mind, because when one would prepare himself for battle, men in that day often wore robes, as you know. But if he needed to protect his home or protect his cattle, that there, because there was some intruder, he would have to gird up his loins. He would, have to, he would have to gather up that robe, and then he would put a belt around his waist to hold that so that he wouldn't have any encumbrances, no hindrances to his ability now to do battle. And what Peter is saying is, you're going to set your hope, but the only way you are going to constantly have your hope set upon what is to come in the midst of all you're going through in the present is if you have a disciplined mind that does battle against all that confronts it. Friends, we are confronted, are we not, in our day? 
with all kinds of things that would beckon us to say, this life is all there is. It's never going to get better. To question constantly why in the present this particular thing or things are happening to us. And we're going to have to have minds that do battle with these false notions, says Peter. And so we have to ask ourselves what needs to be removed, what kinds of thinking and false beliefs and notions need to be removed, and what needs to be fortified in order for us to be alert to what is real rather than just what is apparent. You see, because our current and present trials are apparently all there is, but they're not really all there is. But we have to discipline our minds, don't we? To see beyond the present trial and the present circumstance to the promises of God based upon His trustworthiness and what He's going to do in and through that trial and going into the future. And Peter says as well, you're going to set your hope on the grace that's going to come in the future. Yes, with disciplined minds that have been fortified for battle, but also with minds that are fully sober. Certainly that includes minds that are not adversely affected by any intoxicant, any kind of drug, any kind of addictive substance, fully sober. It means, that phrase fully sober, means self-controlled. Minds that are controlled, one of the fruits of the Spirit, you'll remember, is self-control. You may remember that in Ephesians chapter 5, in verse 18, we are told not to be drunk with wine, but rather, in contrast, to be filled with the Spirit. Now, why is that? Because we're to be controlled by the Spirit, not be controlled by some external substance. And so anything that we would use to seek to escape rather than face and fight the battle that God has placed before us, we need to be fully sober and self-controlled and not escape And the reason we don't have to escape is because we have hope. We have a confident expectation of, yes, what is to come, but also what God is going to do and is doing in the current circumstance. And so, by way of application, I ask you to ask yourself, as I ask myself, is Jesus alive? And is Jesus coming again? Now, I would be willing, if I were a gambling man, I would be willing to gamble that every person here would say yes to that. Jesus is alive, and Jesus is coming again. But at the end of our time today, we're going to ask ourselves, but what difference does that make now in my present circumstance? Am I living in my present circumstance like God is worthy of my trust? Because I really believe Jesus is alive and Jesus is coming again. And so in verse 13, Peter says, Live as though God is worthy of trust. He goes on to say in verses 14 and following that we're to live as well. As if God is worthy of imitation. Worthy of imitation. Because verse 14 says this, As obedient children, 
Do not conform to the evil desires that you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy, because I am holy. So in light of all that God has done for us, verses 1 through 12, you're to do four things. The first one of those is to set your hope on the salvation that you'll receive in the future. I've said it in your outline as live as if God is worthy of trust because He's going to do what He said now and in the future. But now there's the second thing. Be holy in all you do in verse 15. That is live as if God is worthy of being imitated. Because, verse 16 says, you're to live holy because I'm holy. You're to imitate me. You were made to be like me. Well, is what God is like, is God's character worthy of emulation? Is God's character worthy of being imitated in my life? And if we'll answer that, even with a tentative yes, then verse 14 tells us there are some things that we cannot do. Verse 14 says, Do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. And so I say in your outline, this means if God is worthy of imitation, we have to avoid all that is contrary to His character. Avoid all that is contrary to His character. Now, as you read about holiness in verses 15 and 16 throughout Scripture, and as many of us have been taught about holiness in church, perhaps over many years, I'm convinced that many of us have come up with an idea of holiness that is primarily negative. Now, when I say negative, I don't necessarily mean bad. I mean negative in the sense of a negation, things you don't do. Do not do. Stay away from. Avoid. And indeed, verse 14 says, do not conform. And there are lots of don'ts and do nots in Scripture, aren't there? In fact, you know, the top ten commandments in Scripture, many of them are do not. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not commit adultery and so on. So there are many prohibitions in the Bible, many negations in the Bible, things that we are not to do. But here's what we have to bear in mind. We have to bear in mind that all of the things that the Bible tells us not to do, every last one of them, are because of what it is we are positively supposed to do, what it is we are pursuing. And so verse 14 is telling us you cannot conform to the evil desires you once had, but here's why. Because you've been called now to be like me. And so holiness is not, first of all, negative. It is, first of all, something positively we are trying to attain. And because we are trying to attain that positive goal of necessity, then, there are some things that we cannot do. Jesus demonstrated this when he was asked. What is the greatest of the commandments? His opposition sought to catch him. And they asked him, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now notice this. These are two commandments that tell you what to do 
rather than what not to do. Your goal ultimately is to love the Lord your God. This is the first and greatest commandment. And because you love the Lord your God, there are things you don't do. And so you will not have any other gods before me. And you will not make any graven image and bow down to it. And you are to positively love your neighbor as yourself, and therefore you will not commit adultery, and you will not bear false witness, and you will not murder. All of the knots, all of the negations are all because of what it is we are positively called to do. To put it another way, we don't go there. We don't do that because we have been set apart for Him. And that's what holy means set apart. You now, as you've heard me say many times, you now march to the beat of a different drummer. Young lady, you don't chase after ungodly guys because you belong to Jesus. And hear me, young ladies, those who belong don't beg. When you belong to Jesus, you need not beg for anything or anyone. Young men, if you believe that God is the highest one to which we can aspire, if you believe that, then you can find your satisfaction in Him. You need not find your satisfaction in the pleasures of the world, the sinful pleasures of the world. When you realize all that has been done, you can find satisfaction in the good that God has provided because you have tasted that the Lord is indeed good. And I ask you, is the Lord good? As you look at the cross and you see Jesus, is the Lord good? Romans chapter 8 and verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? But the question is, do you believe that? And only if you believe that will you pursue the positive goal of being like God and rejecting all that is not like God. And so if we are going to live as though God is worthy of imitation, it means that we're going to have to avoid all that's contrary to His character. But then I say in your outline, we're going to have to pursue all that is consistent with His character. But just as He who called you is holy, verse 15, so be holy in all you do, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. Verse 16 is in quotation marks. Be holy as I am holy. That's because it's a quote from the Old Testament. It's a quote from the Old Testament book of Leviticus, chapter 14, verses 44 and 45. Also, Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 2. This has always been God's goal. Hear this now. It has always been God's goal and God's purpose that His character be emulated in His world. This is the reason that He made one of His many creatures, He made one of them in His image. That would be you and me. And He made us in His image for us to reflect Him back to Him. 
And so if you're going to do that, if you're going to reject the stuff that the world has to offer, and if you're going to pursue the character of God and being like God in all that you think and say and do, if you're going to do that, you have to ask yourself, does God have my best interest at heart? Or do I need to find satisfaction in illicit ways? In ways that he is not authorized. In ways that the world offers. You and I must ask ourselves, does God have my best interest at heart? And again, <laughs> I ask, is Jesus alive and is Jesus coming again? We all say, amen, brother. But do we live that way? And do we live as if Jesus has our best interest at heart? We need to live in a way that says God is worthy of imitation. God is worthy of being emulated in his character. And in order for us to do that, verses 17 to 21 say that we have to remember that God cares about his character. God cares about his character. And he cares about his character enough to do a couple of things. He cares enough about having a people, a peculiar people, a people who are his very own, a people who is prized possession, who, different from the rest of the world, march to the beat of that different drummer, and they reflect God back to God in the things that they avoid and in the things that they pursue. And God cares so much that that happens. That verses 17 through 21 tell us he's going to do a couple of things. One, he cares enough to evaluate us. Verse 17 says, Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. See, Peter is saying, you have this relationship, this marvelous relationship that I've told you about in verses 1 through 12, and now I'm telling you, based on that, this is how you're to live. And yes, it is absolutely true that he has given you new birth, verse 3, so that you are now in his family and he is your father. But Peter says, remember this, he is a father who judges. And so in light of that, God cares enough about his character being reflected in his world that he wants you to be reminded and me to be reminded that he will evaluate how we did that. So the Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due for us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Now, this is not a judgment. We must all appear, says Paul, including himself. This is not a judgment for whether or not we're going to heaven if we've come to Jesus. This is a judgment now with, how, with what price we held the salvation that he has purchased for us. To what extent did I value what God has given to me in the way that in turn I lived? And God cares enough about his character being emulated in your life and my life that he's going to evaluate that. Now many of us are familiar with that, that verse. But we may stop reading there. When in fact in the next verse, Paul who wrote that says this, we, including himself, must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ to receive what is do us. And then he says this, Since then we know what it is to fear the Lord. We try to persuade others. Paul says, I look forward to being with Jesus, 
He says that many times in his letters. But he says, I know I'm going to give an account of the stewardship that God has entrusted to me. And because I know what it is to fear the Lord, it motivates me to carry out his work in the time that he has given to me. And so you and I need to ask ourselves another question. Ask yourself this. Am I really going to stand before God? Do I really believe that I'm going to stand before God? And if I really believe I'm going to stand before God, do I live accordingly? God cares enough to evaluate us. And he cares enough to do something else, verses 18 to 21. He cares enough to, of course, redeem us. And so Peter reminds us, four. There's one of those explanation words again now. Four, because you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but it was with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Peter is writing to people who are in the present suffering. He's trying to remind them that it is temporary, that there is a, a future hope. And in reminding them of that, he says four. Here's one of the motivations that you have for doing what it is that you're being instructed to do here. In this case, to imitate God, to be holy in all you do. It's because it's with the eternal person of God the Son who became man on your behalf and who shed His blood for you that you have been bought out of the slave market of sin and into the family of God. God didn't just start this yesterday. He didn't start it last year. He didn't start this when He called you. He didn't start this when you were saved. He, start, he didn't start it when you were born. He didn't start it when He created the world. God started all of this in eternity past from before the foundation of the world. And hear this, God finishes what He starts. And because God started this, with the death of Jesus in the mind of God as a reality before he had done anything else, God determined that he would redeem a people for himself. And those people will most assuredly persevere to the end. And because that's the case then, now, you live in a way that imitates God even in the midst of your suffering even in the midst of your difficulties. Peter reminds us of the facts that undergird the truth of the Christian gospel. Christianity is based on historical facts, apart from which our belief and our hope are vain, and we do grieve like those who have no hope. But he says in verse 21, your faith and your hope are on solid foundation. They are in God who raised Jesus from the dead and glorified him. 1 Corinthians 15 reminds us, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And 1 Thessalonians 4 says, we do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. We believe we have faith because Jesus is alive. We have hope because Jesus is alive and Jesus is coming again. And so I want you to ask a fourth and final question and we'll finish soon.
Ask yourself this. Is Jesus' blood precious to me? As you are called, as I am called, to live in a way that God is worthy of imitation and to rid my life of those things that are contrary to His character and to pursue those things that are consistent with His character and to remember that God cares enough about His character being emulated in His world that He's going to evaluate us. He cares enough about this that He has redeemed us with the precious blood of Jesus. Do I believe that the blood of Jesus is precious? Again, we all say yes. Amen, brother. But friends, when we do not trust and when we do not imitate God, we are saying that He is not worthy of those things. And those questions that I've asked of you and of myself throughout the message, you can change those questions into declarations. Very stark and very probing and convicting, I think. So I said, ask yourself, is Jesus alive and coming again? Well, when I live in worry and anger because of what's happening right now, I betray that I don't really believe Jesus is alive and coming again. And I ask you to ask yourself, as I ask myself, does God have my best interest at heart? But friends, when I am joyless in the midst of my circumstances, I betray that I do not believe that God is good. And I said to ask yourself, as I ask myself, am I really going to stand before God? But when I live in a way as though today is what matters, and I use my resources the same as those who are practical atheists. <laughs> you know what I mean? Practical atheists. You know, there aren't any real atheists, according to the Bible. Everyone knows that there is a God who made them, according to Romans chapter 1. The heavens declare the glory of God. There aren't any real atheists. Oh, but there are a ton of practical atheists who live as though God doesn't exist and God is not a factor and God's not a player. But you and I aren't to be one of the practical atheists. And yet, am I going to stand before God and if I live in a way that today is what matters, I use my resources the same as those who are practical atheists, I betray that I do not believe how I live now matters to God. And I fourthly asked you as I asked myself, is Jesus' blood precious to me? But when I make my salvation a thing of the past, a sort of insurance policy that I signed a long time ago and I forgot about. I'm glad it protects me from hell in the future. But that's about it. That I'm saying that the price Jesus paid is not worth my few years on earth. And nobody in this room would say any of those things. But what we won't even whisper with our lips we often say very loudly with our lives. And Peter is calling us, God is calling us, to say, you're a privileged people. I bought you with my own blood. I know you're going through suffering, but I'm a good God who's going to use your suffering for your good and my glory. Do you believe that? 
I have a take-home truth for you in your outline. God has given us every, every reason to live like Him. Now, we're going to pray in just a moment. It's sobering, it's convicting for me, and I'm sure for you as well. This all starts, first of all, with a relationship with God through Jesus. It would be a tragedy for anyone to leave this room without a relationship with God, because that can be yours for the asking. And what do you what do? You do? What does God call you to do? Recognize that you're a sinner, that your propensity is, your tendency naturally, as is all of ours, is to go our own way and not follow the God who has made us. That's the essence of our sin, to go my own way, to put someone and something before God. Realize you're a sinner. Recognize, though, that Jesus has done what you could not do. He died the death that should have been yours and mine. He lived the life that you can't live because of your sin. And so repent of your sin. Lord, I'm going to follow you with my life haltingly and perfectly. In fact, I can't do it at all without your grace, but I want to go your way. And you receive Jesus into your life. When we bow in just a moment, you pray from your heart to God, Lord, I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus is my God and Savior, and I ask you to rescue me from myself and from your wrath. And he promises to save you. Those of us who have come to Jesus, let's go to him, and yes, let's confess. But I want you to do something else as well. I don't want to leave this place as just somber, just convicted. Let's remember this, dear friend. If you're convicted as am I, it's because Jesus cares enough to have his Holy Spirit and his word convict you. And that too is evidence of the grace of God in our lives. Thanks be to God. And he's given you a heart that resonates with his so that when you read what he says and your life doesn't line up as mine does not line up, then we say to ourselves, oh God, have mercy. I need the blood of Jesus every moment of every day. But you have it every moment of every day. Thanks be to God. And so let's bow and let's thank him that we can approach him and let's thank him that his spirit and his word are at work in our lives. Let's ask him to forgive us. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Let's bow together. Oh, Father, thank you for your servant Peter who wrote these words to struggling Christians as are we. He wrote them to comfort them, but also to show them what needs to change. And Lord, as you apply the surgical knife of your word to our hearts, it cuts, it cuts deep, and it, it hurts. But it is cut that you want to make so that you can heal. You want to excise all that should not be there. And so we thank you that you love us enough to do this. So thank you for that manifestation of your grace in our lives. Thank you for the manifestation of your grace that your Holy Spirit chides us and convicts us and what we're taught from your word resonates within us so that we do want to be like Jesus, so that we do want to rid ourselves of those things that are contrary to your character. Oh, Lord, thank you for these reminders. And thank you for creating this desire within us. And Lord, for anyone who came into this room but does not know you, you have supplied the way, the only way, in the way, the truth, and the life that is Jesus. No one can come to the Father apart from him. But thank you that he offers himself. He's offering himself now to the hearts of those that are here who have heard your truth and who know that they have been void of it.
We ask your spirit to draw them to yourself so that they can live lives that imitate you and bring glory to your name. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray all of these things. Amen.